you would turn with me in your Bibles to 2 Corinthians chapter 1, we begin in verse 12 this morning, I'm going to read through chapter 2 of verse 4, but don't get too excited. I originally had planned on doing one sermon on this section, but I couldn't get past the first verse, so might be a couple more. We'll see, uh, but we're going to mainly focus on verse 12 this morning, but, but with the, the context as a whole, we'll go ahead and read through the whole thing and go from there. So we'll probably be in 2 Corinthians for about five years. It's no big deal. <clears throat> Hear the word of the Lord. For our boast is this, the testimony of our conscience. We have behaved in the world with simplicity and godly sincerity, not by earthly wisdom, but by the grace of God, and supremely so toward you. For we're not writing to you anything other than what you read and understand, and I hope you will fully understand, just as you did partially understand us, that on the day of our Lord Jesus, you will boast of us as we will boast of you. Because I was sure of this, I wanted to come to you first, so that you might have a second experience of grace. I wanted to visit you on my way to Macedonia, and to come back to you from Macedonia, and have you send me on my way to Judea. Was I vacillating when I wanted to do this? Do I make my plans according to the flesh, ready to say yes, yes, and no, no at the same time? As surely as God is faithful, our word to you has not been yes and no. For the Son of God, Jesus Christ, whom we proclaimed among you, Silvanus and Timothy and I, was not yes and no, but in him it is always yes. For all the promises of God find their yes in him. That is why it is through him that we utter our amen to God for his glory. And it is God who establishes us with you in Christ and has anointed us and who has also put his seal on us and given us his spirit in our hearts as a guarantee. But I call God to witness against me. It was to spare you that I refrained from coming again to, to Corinth. Not that we lorded over your faith, but we work with you for your joy, for you stand firm in your faith. For I made up my mind not to make another painful visit to you, for if I cause you pain, who is there to make me glad but the one to whom I have pained? And I wrote as I did, so that when I came, I might not suffer pain from those who should have made me rejoice. For I felt sure of all of you that my joy would be the joy of you all. For I wrote to you out of much affliction and anguish of heart and with many tears, not to cause you pain, but to let you know the abundant love that I have for you. Let's pray together. Father, we ask that as we hear and, and read your word together, Oh, that you would give us more light and understanding, uh, that we would come to a full understanding of the gospel of Christ, the assurance of salvation, that we would understand the, the wisdom of heaven, and know how to live our lives according to that pattern rather than the patterns of this world. We pray that you would continue to help us to have the mind of Christ and to think your thoughts after you. Lord, we pray that through your word this day that you would correct us and rebuke us, encourage us, Lord, train us in all things that we might be righteous men and women, that we might walk according to your ways. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I read an article this week about the personal life of Karl Barth. Uh, many of you probably aren't as familiar with him, but he was a very important theologian. Some say the most important theologian of the 20th century. His work heavily influenced a number of other pastors and, and theologians, including the one that I mentioned to you last week, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, uh, who was the man who had died in prison after plotting to overthrow Hitler. Um, 
Bart, in fact, was largely responsible for writing what was called the Barman Declaration of Faith in 1934, which rejected Nazism and declared the church's allegiance to Christ over all earthly lords or Führers, such as Hitler. Uh, consequently, uh, later that same year, he was forced to resign his professorship at the University of Bonn for refusing to swear allegiance to Hitler. Then at the end of the war, he also helped Germany, uh, the German church, to write what was called the Darmstadt Declaration in 1947, admitting German guilt and responsibility for all the Nazi atrocities. And he did this in order to try to reconcile the churches in Germany with the church of the rest of the world. Because how could a church allow this type of thing to happen? Swearing allegiance to Hitler and yet killing millions of people at the same time. It's been said that Bart was such a great theologian and a gift to God's church that it's a shame that he was also an adulterous and unfaithful husband. Recently, it's come to light through some of his private letters that Bart had carried on an affair with one of his colleagues and assistants for 40 years. Even moving this woman into his home in the bedroom next to him and his wife. His wife, suspecting that something was foul, gave him an ultimatum and said, basically, either move her out or give me a divorce. He refused to do either and continued to live a double life until he died. Unfortunately, after toppling the throne of Hitler, Bart set up another idolatrous throne instead. And he never did quite resolve the tension between serving two different masters. Here in our text this morning, the, the Apostle Paul is... Is, is being accused of something like this, not quite to the level of infidelity and adultery, but yet he is being accused of, of having a double life, if you will, or having a, a, a double tongue, speaking out of both sides of his mouth, saying one thing and yet wanting to do something else. He was being accused of being self-serving and manipulative. Of course, these were false allegations, but if he didn't defend them because he was the primary apostle and messenger to the Corinthians, the gospel itself was in danger of not being received. And so he felt the need to defend himself and to explain his actions, why he did one thing as opposed to saying another. So what was the grievous sin that he committed, supposedly, uh, that he was accused of by some in Corinth? Well, he seemed to have broken a promise that he had made to the Corinthians, supposedly out of fear and weakness. And the promise that he made was given back in 1 Corinthians 15, verses 5 through 9. So if you, you can look back, it's the page right before this one, where Paul tells the believers in Corinth that he was intending on staying in Ephesus until the day of Pentecost. He had been there for a couple of years at this point. And then from there, he was going to make his way from Asia Minor over to Macedonia, which is the northern part, if you will, of Greece. And then eventually he would come down to the southern part of Greece to stay with them in Corinth for the winter before then heading back east to Jerusalem to provide some monetary aid to the believers there. But instead of doing that, he changed his mind. He had heard a report from Timothy that something was gone wrong in the church at Corinth. And so Paul immediately left his post in Ephesus to go address the, the issue that was happening in the church there. And apparently it was a very brief visit and also a very painful one because there's some aspect of church discipline involved, which we'll talk about later on in the next chapter. 
We don't know all the facts of the case. We don't know exactly what happened or what was said. But we know that there were some in the church that did not respect Paul's authority and how he handled this situation. And as a result, uh, he had to leave with it still being unresolved. Now, in the meantime, a number of letters were exchanged. Now, this makes it uh, a little bit complicated for you if, you if you were a Star Wars fan and then later realized that what you thought was Star Wars number one is actually number four. I feel bad for you. But it's sort of the same way with First and Second Corinthians. You may think that Second Corinthians is the second letter he wrote. It probably was not. There probably were many letters written in between and before Second Corinthians and First Corinthians. What happened is he had exchanged a number of letters back and forth explaining to them the need to discipline a particular individual in the church and respect that, uh, that discipline process, and some were not. So Paul then writes a very painful letter, which we do not have and don't need because that's not part of Scripture. Uh, but nevertheless, in that letter, he expresses an urgent need for them to repent uh, for not giving glory to God and taking care of this matter appropriately. And uh, as a result, he, of uh, sending that letter and after that painful visit, he resolved not to return back to Corinth immediately. And he doesn't explain to them why. And so they begin to think, well, you're vacillating. You're wishy-washy. You say one thing, you mean another. You don't keep your promises. How could you be an apostle of God? That's basically their accusation. So those who are in the church who are making this accusation of him changing his plans are basically saying that you're not a true messenger of God, you're not a true apostle of God, and therefore we don't need to listen to your message. And that becomes very important. So that's why he is uh, writing them uh, to defend himself. Now, is it just me, or does this seem kind of petty? Does this seem petty to you? <laughs> they're, they're basically acting as if he just committed murder because he said he was going to come and then he did right? In fact, it, it, it reminds me... Of, of something that I had heard um, when my sister uh, was passing away. I told you about last week about how my sister died of cancer when she was 39. Well, the week that, the last week that she was living, I remember we went to her house and, you know, we're getting ready for her to pass into eternity. And uh, I remember after spending some time with my, with her, she was already um, uh, in a coma at this point. Um, I remember overhearing a phone call that someone had made to my brother-in-law. Now, my brother-in-law was also a pastor uh, of a Baptist church in North Carolina, in that particular town. And I remember a member of the church had called him up to basically tell him why they were leaving the church. And if I remember correctly, it had something to do with, well, we found a better youth group somewhere else. We feel like we're being better fed at this place as opposed to yours and blah, 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 um, and some other things. And, and, of course, I overheard my brother-in-law saying to him, of course, of course, I understand, you know, God bless you, blah, 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 you know, that type of thing. And uh, which is the exact same thing I would say, you know, given I were in his situation, because nobody likes an immature pastor doesn't know how to say bye to people who are leaving, right? That makes sense. But I wasn't the pastor of that particular church. And I literally wanted to just reach out over the line and strangle the man who had just called him, thinking you have to be the most unsympathetic human being on the planet at this moment to make this call, knowing that his wife is about to die and everyone is already grieving. And you have the call to make such a stupid phone call. 
Sometimes in ministry, we just read about a passage in Moses, but the Apostle Paul and many others, sometimes when you're dealing with people, people sometimes sin against you. Sometimes can say very stupid, demeaning, belittling things and make all sorts of horrible assumptions about you when they have no idea what's going on. We do this Christian to Christian. We do this friend to friend, but but also we do it uh, with pastors. And thankfully, like I said, this passage has nothing to do with going on anything in my life, so don't worry about that. I'm not bringing up anything in that regard, but I have been through it myself, and I've seen it uh, in that regard as well. But I'll tell you this, my brother-in-law, a couple of months after that event, uh, resigned from the church, and he hasn't pastored a church since. That was 14 years ago. You wonder why. In fact, if you look at the statistics, 80% of seminary graduates quit the ministry within the first five years and never return. You wonder why. This is how people treat people. In fact, the average ministry tenure of any minister in the United States is three to five years. So even if he stays in the ministry, he's probably going somewhere else within five. Because they go through stupid, belittling things like this, and it's hard even for Uh, ministers who are human beings to be able to handle it at times. Now keep in mind, Paul had spent 18 months with these people in Corinth. Not in the same way an 18 months pastor would have spent with you, because oftentimes you don't see me except on Sunday and sporadically throughout uh, different parts of the month, but he was with them every day teaching, every day for 18 months straight. Paul was not a stranger to them. They knew him. They knew his character They knew the sacrifices that he had made and the love that he had shown them and yet still made these types of accusations against him. Now keep in mind also, every other church that Paul had ministered to had helped him some way financially to care for his needs, but not so in Corinth. He purposely didn't ask them for a dime because there were so many people that would travel. Corinth was a very popular city and it was also a very popular city for many philosophers and traveling theologians, if you will, to make a buck or two along the way. And so Paul, from the very beginning of his ministry, was being lumped in with those guys and was being uh, accused, if you will, of just trying to make money off of them. And so he never asked them for a dime. It was actually the churches in Philippi and Thessalonica that were supporting him half the time while he was there, in addition to him being that tent-making pastor. He literally was making tents in order to provide for his own needs so he wouldn't have to ask them for anything. And yet, with those sacrifices, with the amount of time he had spent them day and night teaching them, they're still questioning his integrity. After seeing all of these evidences of faith, his work, and his love for them, uh, how do ministers respond to such petty accusations? Well, I've always felt that the first rule of thumb very simple to follow with all Christians in in that regard, is that love covers over a multitude of sins. Knowing that uh, all of us have bad days, all of us put our foot in our mouths and at times say things that we shouldn't and cause problems. We all do that. So the rule of thumb should be love ought to cover a multitude of sins. Don't have to confront everybody every time someone says a a straight word to you. That's, That's normal. But in this instance, it's not just Paul's psyche that is at stake here. It's also the very gospel message. So there are times in which 
those in leadership have to defend themselves because their actions have been brought into such dangerous territory uh, in terms of accusation that it really undermines everything that they've been doing, everything they've been teaching, everything they've been ministering in that sense. And so he, he has to give a defense in this case, and that's exactly what he does. He's defending his own integrity in this passage. And there are four words or phrases that he uses in this first verse, in verse 12, that I want us to focus on today that help us to see a little bit about what it means to be a, a man or a woman of integrity. Certainly this is in application to the role of a, an apostle or a minister, but it applies to all of us as Christians. What does it look like to actually walk with integrity of heart? This is a common theme that's seen throughout Scripture. And so I, wanna, I want us to have that be the subject of the sermon this morning. For everyone who calls themselves a Christian, uh, what does it look like to be a Christian with integrity? So, if we look first... Uh, in verse 12, Paul speaks of the importance of having a clear or a clean conscience. It's a very important uh, term. He says that verse 12, for our boast is this, the testimony of our conscience or our good conscience. Of course, by, by conscience, Paul means those inner thoughts, that inner sense of right and wrong uh, that helped him determine the proper course of action to take at any given moment. Uh, here, Paul's not only saying that his conscience is clear about his particular travel plans that he's being accused of waffling on, but all of his ministry, he's always sought to live according to his conscience. In fact, later on in Acts 23, verse 1, he says this exact same statement before the Sanhedrin. If you remember, those are the same ones that put Jesus to death, declared him guilty. Uh, he stands before the Sanhedrin, Paul does, in Jerusalem, and he says, I have lived my life before God in all good conscience up to this day. Clearly, he sought to live according to his conscience. Now, that doesn't mean that Paul never sinned. It simply means that when his conscience directed him in a particular course of action, he followed it. And when his conscience sought to correct him or made him feel guilty about the actions that he was about to take or had taken, that he would repent of those things and, again, act in good conscience, right? Even before he came to faith in Christ, he always said that he sought to, to do what was according to his conscience. Now, that can be a problem at times because our conscience especially uh, can be uh, in error. Think of it this way. The Apostle Paul, in good conscience, persecuted Christ and his church. If you hear what he's saying, he's saying, according to my conscience, I did these things. So uh, the conscience left on its own is not always to be trusted. But in this case, he was acting according to his conscience because he believed that Christ was a heretic and that his followers were actually causing great damage throughout the world. And so he wanted to put an end to it, and in good conscience, he did so. So I think it's, it's very important to state that the conscience is not to be considered the ultimate determiner of right and wrong. A lot of people today will say, in good conscience, I'm married to this woman, but I also love this other woman. I actually had a conversation with my pastor over the phone in which he gave me those exact same words after he had an affair with his secretary. And I'm on the phone going, really? That's the stupidest thing I've ever heard. You don't love either one of these women. Good conscience. <laughs> Nevertheless, in this particular case, what Paul is emphasizing is that now that as a believer, even, 
With his conscience held captive by the word of God, he's saying when he hears what the word of God has said about what he ought to do in terms of ethics and morality, that he tries always to act in good conscience. He's not going against his conscience, but rather acting accordingly. And that's exactly what Karl Barth did not do. Because in his letters, he also admits that he knew that what he was doing was wrong. And yet said, well, God must have purposely led me to this woman anyway, and it's not my fault, if you will. He's going against his conscience. It was actually Karl Barth's predecessor, Martin Luther, who was one of the first men to stand up to the earthly powers, if you will, in terms of the church, of Roman Catholic Church, when he denounced the false doctrines that were being taught back in the 16th century. And when one of the representatives of the Pope told him that he needed to renounce his views and renounce his teachings, he said he couldn't do that because his conscience was held captive by the Word of God and had to teach what the Word of God said. And so this is a famous statement that he said at the time when he was on trial. He said, to go against conscience is neither right nor safe. I cannot and I will not recant. Here I stand. I could do no other. God help me. Man of integrity wanted to go according to his conscience because his conscience was now in submission to the word of God. Just as Paul said in Romans 14, verse 23, he says, whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. Now, that's a strange situation because basically what Paul is saying is there are many things in life that are actually not sin at all. God has not said it's sin. But if in your mind you think it's sinful and yet you do it anyway, it has become sin to you because you've gone against the conscience that God has given you because you think that you can overthrow the authority of God because you think it's wrong and yet you do it anyway. In your mind, you've sinned against God because you're not loving God with all your heart and all your mind. You have sinned against your conscience. And that's exactly what Paul uses in reference to many believing people supposedly that went from the unbelieving stage to the believing stage and yet then turned away from all that they knew. He says, you now have a dulled or a seared conscience because you know what is right and yet you still do what is wrong. Now notice if you remember when Jesus is on the cross and, and he makes that famous statement, Father, forgive them for they what? They know not what they're doing. In other words, he's saying they, their conscience didn't tell them that was wrong. Stephen says the same thing when he's being stoned. Forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. But it's a totally different matter when someone does know what they're doing and yet still doesn't. They're going against their conscience. That is not a man or woman of integrity. In fact, if you think about it, the, the, even the word integrity uh, can be related to the mathematical realm, right? We use the term integer. For all those of you who are very glad that you haven't had a math class in many, many years, such as myself, but still have to teach kids every now and then. The word integer means whole. So oftentimes we think of a whole number. You know, sometimes it could be a positive or negative number, but integers generally do not include fractions unless a fraction can be turned into a whole number. But I'm not going to get into that with you this morning. The point is, what you need to know is that an integer generally does not include fractions because a whole number is not fractured in any way. A man or woman of integrity is a whole person that is not fractured by going against their conscience. They don't have a fractured self. 
saying one thing and yet doing the other, believing one thing and yet committing the other. It's a whole person acting accordingly. And Paul is saying that in his heart, he has served God wholly. Even if he's done it wrong at times, he has done it in good conscience. That's a mark of integrity. Anytime you see a man or a woman who does not act according to the conscience, you want to run far from them. Because they are not acting with integrity. And they will cause great damage to you and to anybody in the church. Seen it. I've worked with a pastor who did not have integrity. And it's devastating. It really is. That's number one. Then second, in addition to having a clear conscience, Paul also says in verse 12 that he and his co-laborers behave themselves in the world with simplicity. It's interesting. The Greek word for simplicity can be translated a number of different ways. Uh, But in this particular uh, word that he uses, it literally means without folds. Like an unfolded piece of clothing. What does that mean? Well, there's one thing that I know a lot about is the sheer complexity of folded clothing. (laughs) Probably many of you can just go into any store and pick out an article of clothing that's already in your size. Simply purchase it, take it home, and you'll keep it for years. But as a tall man, such as I, with a 36-inch inseam and a 37-inch sleeve length, it's not quite that easy. If that means nothing to you, don't worry about it, because all you need to know is that most stores do not carry that size. And if by chance they do, if they have the length of my pants, usually the waist size is five times bigger than me. Or if they carry the length of my shirt, for some reason, the short the shirt is too short on me. And I don't mean just the stuff that's hanging on the racks. I'm also talking about those horribly folded and packaged dress shirts that they make that already have the size on them, that they're supposed to be consistent but are not. I make a mess every time I go shopping because I'll rip off all those plastics. Unfold and unpin and uncollar and everything else out of that so I can see whether or not they have skimped on the length of the shirt because it will not fit me otherwise. So in other words, it's a very complex process for me when I go shopping. And I like to shop all by myself because no one has the patience to shop with me because nothing fits and I mean nothing. Now, Paul is obviously not talking about clothing here. The Shakers would actually call themselves uh, people who prized simplicity. Right? We think of the, ter- the, the, gift, the song, The Simple Gifts. They sought to live a simple lifestyle, constructing simple furniture, wearing simple clothes. Paul is not advocating for minimalism here in that sense. Rather, he's referring to a simple faith in Christ, not making things that are, complex, that are simple into something that's complex. In other words, don't make it hard when it's easy. There are some things that Paul will admit, Peter will admit, that they're much harder to understand, but that God gives more information and more understanding as you grow in your faith in Christ. But don't make it more complex than you need to. So basically what he's saying, his his detractors, his accusers were saying that he was making things more difficult than they need be. And he was talking out of both sides of his mouth and not really saying what he really believed. And he's saying, no, I've been very simple with you. I've explained the gospel in very simple terms to you. I'm not a Gnostic. So a Gnostic is someone who is always claiming to have secret knowledge that no one else has. And he says it in such a way that he talks over you that you don't really understand what he's saying. He's using esoteric terminology. And you think he's really smart, so you think he must be right. 
because he can't speak in simple words right even as a pastor i may throw out a word every now and then you don't know what it means i usually try to explain it to you so that you can know what i'm where i'm going with it but sometimes there's just a, a really good word that i want to use and i know that many people probably aren't familiar with, but i want to use it but at the same time, I don't want to speak in a language that constantly is confusing everyone. And that's what he's being accused of here. So he's saying, I have lived with simplicity. I've kept this message in such a simple way that you ought to understand. In fact, it was his detractors who were being overly complex for no reason. They were the ones who claimed this secret knowledge and claimed in their boasting that they were much more educated and more... Uh, knowledgeable than him so he's saying no i'm a man of integrity i work according to my conscience and i work in simplicity that's number two it's a good sign of a man of integrity he's not in fact if you think about it a compulsive liar has a very complex mind does he not he's constantly having to think what did he tell you that was true and what was a lie and constantly having to rethink through things and then use words just right can't say too much can't say too little i want to make sure that I mislead you in that sense. A simple person just says, you ask me, what's the question, yes or no? Yes. A complex person says, well, it depends. What do you mean by that? And how did you say that? Well, maybe last week it was this, but not this week, right? When someone asks you a simple question, Jesus says, let your yes be yes and your no be no. You don't have to explain. Anyone who has to constantly explain everything, usually that person's not to be trusted. And that's what he's saying. I've made it very plain to you what I stand for and what I'm teaching, and yet they're trying to accuse me of something other. That's number two. Then number three, Paul also says that he and his co-laborers lived in the world with sincerity, not just simplicity, but also with sincerity. And in the following chapter, Paul will use the same word again to distinguish his ministry from those who are antagonizing him. He says in chapter 2, verse 17, For we are not like so many peddlers of God's word, but as men of sincerity, commissioned by God, we speak in Christ. Now again, I already mentioned to you that during this time in ancient Roman Empire, there were many that would go throughout the empire, particularly some of the larger cities like Corinth, seeking victims, if you will, for their mystery cults. They would try to initiate you into some particular strange cultic type of religion, and they were basically looking for your money. Many would teach their latest fads and theology and philosophy and entertain you with new ideas, constantly trying to get you to become one of their disciples. They weren't looking really to help anyone. They were looking just to make money off of people. Can I be honest with you? Most Christian bookstores do the same thing today. Be very careful what you buy at a Christian bookstore. They will sell you anything that's popular. They will not sell you the truth. I worked at one for a year. I begged and pleaded, can we get rid of half of these books? They're horrible. No, they sell well. We'll continue to sell them. Peddlers of God's word, you see. Even the Bibles. It's amazing. They'll sell you a Bible that says anything. And that looks in any way different than other Bibles to make it more attractive to you so that you might buy it for 50 bucks when it's free. But I tell you, it's even worse online. Please, please, please do not try to find the answers to theology online. I can't tell you how many young people have been grievously led astray 
because they're trying to find the answers to their questions from some person who claims to know something but doesn't give a single care about them at all. They will sell you anything to make a disciple of the devil rather than a disciple of Christ, but they will use great words, complex words, to make you think that you've missed something, that you've misunderstood something. The concept of sincerity is a fascinating word in the Greek. I, I, I've always loved this term. Uh, sincerity literally means to be judged by the sun. Um, and selling their wares, these peddlers, these merchants would, would pitch a tent in, in, inside the city walls. And they would always pitch them underneath a tent. And usually their tents were a little bit darker than some other people's tents so that you couldn't quite see exactly what you were purchasing. And oftentimes they were known for selling some sort of earthenware, some sort of pottery, if you will, right? And you think, well, not that hard. You can see the pottery when you're looking at it. But the problem is they would sell you pottery that didn't have integrity. So in other words, they would sell you broken pieces of pottery, broken vases and what bowls and what have you. And they would fill it in with wax and then give a light coating over it, whatever else. And you couldn't tell the difference, but you take it home and you barely touch it against the side of something and the whole thing breaks, falls apart. So what they would do is they purposely put it in the dark along with the nice pieces of pottery. You really couldn't tell the difference. It looks good until you bring it home. So the word sincerity literally means to take that piece of pottery out from underneath the tent and put it up in the sunlight so you can see the cracks. You see, there's something wrong. And the savvy customers would do that, whereas the simple-minded ones would not. They would just go ahead and purchase it as is. And so what's happening here is Paul and his ministry is being held up to the sun, supposedly by his detractors, and they're saying there's cracks in his ministry. There's something wrong with what he's saying. There's something wrong with his character. He tells you one thing but doesn't do it. But in reality, they are the ones who are the cracked pots, if you will. Paul does admit that he is a clay pot, and that he also admits that they are clay pots, but he's not selling clay pots to them. He's certainly not selling broken pots. Rather, he's trying to give them that free treasure that's inside jars of clay. They can see what the true value is, where that really lies. But they're just trying to sell some broken piece of pottery and making a buck or two off of you. He's saying, no, a man of integrity is sincere in his approach. I have been sincere with you. I have not tried to sell you something. I've been trying to give you what only is good for you. Then fourth, Paul also says in verse 12, he says, we behaved in this world not by earthly wisdom, but by the grace of God and supremely so or abundantly so toward you. There's a big difference, as you know, between the wisdom of God and the wisdom of this world or what the wisdom of this world is and the grace of God. It's another way of saying it. In fact, in James chapter 3, uh, beginning in verse 14, the half-brother of Jesus says this. He says, if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast and be false to the truth. This is not the wisdom that comes from heaven, but it's earthly, unspiritual, even demonic. But the wisdom from above is pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits. It's impartial and sincere, uses that word again. In this case, Paul, again, is contrasting his ministry with the ministry of his detractors in Corinth who were accusing him of being deceitful and manipulative, not caring for these people whatsoever, where in fact, he's expressing to them, he has abundantly shown them grace. He has abundantly shown them love, whereas his opponents were constantly 
simply trying to give you something impartial, something that is not from heaven. In fact, Paul tells them, he says, I've been working for your joy. If he's trying to sell them anything, he's trying to sell them joy. He's not seeking to make money off them. He's seeking to bring a blessing to them that they in turn might be a blessing to others. In fact, there's a a similar passage in 1 Timothy 1, verse 5. Paul says this to his his co-laborer, one of his uh, evangelists, to Timothy itself. He says, the aim of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart, a good conscience, and a sincere faith. Again, using all the same terms over and over again here. Paul is mentioning sincerity, good conscience, singleness of heart. But in this case, it's in reference to his love for the people of the church. So oftentimes you'll see the word grace and love, sometimes used synonymously, even though they are distinct terms, they have distinct meanings. It makes sense because you know it's grace comes out of the love of God for us and at the same time, we see that grace is merely one aspect of God's love for us. Well, in this way, Paul is, is showing the Corinthians his love for them by giving them grace that they don't deserve. Now, here's, here's what I mean by this. Um, the passage that Mark read earlier um, from the book of Numbers was showing Moses, who was being accused by the people of leading them into the desert to kill them. Because that's what, you know, Moses is just a really hard guy like that. You know, he's like, well, I'm going to get you out of Egypt, and then I'm going to kill you in the desert. Right? Makes no sense whatsoever, but that's what they were saying. So in the same way, these people in Corinth are saying, well, Paul gave us the gospel so he can kill us in some way. Makes no sense whatsoever, but that, that's what he's been accused of. But nevertheless, you see Moses in the desert is willing to have his own name blotted out from the book of life in order that God would spare these people that have been accusing him of sin again and again and complaining and bitterly griping and grumbling against him again and again. And yet Moses is is asking for God to be gracious to them. In the same way, Paul is sharing with this church in Corinth who is attacking his character, saying that he, he lacks integrity, saying that You know, he's just a peddler of God's word. And yet he's saying to them, oh, how I have loved you. Oh, how I long that God would give you more grace. And even in the end of this passage we read this morning in chapter 2, verse 4, he's saying, I wrote this letter to you that was this painful letter to you because of my abundant love for you. It's the grace of God in a man of integrity, a woman of integrity, that causes them to love someone in such a way that even when they say the dumbest of things and attack you left and right, you still have the ability to give them grace. That only comes from God. That only comes from being a whole person in Christ. You're not a fractured self. You're not wavering back and forth between loving God and loving your neighbor, but rather you've known what it is to be the fractured person who says you love God but, but doesn't really. And so as a result, you're able to give love to a neighbor who says they love you, but they don't. Or a church member who says that they support you, but they really don't. Um, To me, I think one of the the, the greatest aspects of of a man of integrity in the office of of a pastor or a similar calling as an elder or deacon of the church is someone who can give grace to those who do not know how to give grace to them. And I mean, you see it often. (laughs) There are plenty of people in the church who have yet to even taste grace. They don't know how to give it. And yet, the man of integrity 
can see them in the way that God sees them. Give them mercy because they know God has given us mercy in that same way. I, I, I read an illustration the other day that I think was a great um, way to explain the, the grace of God. I can't remember the guy's name, but he was, he was comparing the grace of God to a, a flying trapeze act. Uh, you know, those types of things. You've been to the circus before. It could be quite entertaining to watch those death-defying acts, if you will, admiring their, their timing, their dexterity, and then also grasping at their near misses. You know, every now and then they do miss. I actually went to a circus once where someone missed and then fell pretty hard, and there was no net, which is really doesn't make any sense at all. I'm not sure why they did that. Most of the time when you go to the circus, uh, you would see these acts with a net underneath, and the, the net is so good, right? When an athlete falls, they immediately get back up. They climb back up again. They do it all over again. They keep going on with the act. It's no big deal. You fell. Who cares? What, what does it matter? It's sort of like what it is like to be a Christian. I mean, if you're expecting your fellow Christian to be perfect, always get it right, well, you're going to be sadly mistaken because he's going to fall. But God's grace is there. There's a net to catch him when he falls. And then you encourage him to get back up again. And he goes right back to the act, still showing something of the glory of God with that same dexterity and that same timing and that same just marvelous change that's happened within them. When we as Christians understand that there's a net for us, that God gives us that type of grace, we can give that same grace to someone else. Helping them to see, there's a net for you, brother. God will forgive you. Repent. Take up your faith again in Christ and, and show us again what God can do in you. That's it. That's integrity. You're not trying to pretend to be something that you're not. You're not trying to advertise, well, I've got it so much under control. I'm really holy and you guys aren't. You know? It's not like that. You're not trying to promote yourself. There's a big difference between what Paul is boasting in and what his detractors are boasting in. They're boasting in their righteousness. He's boasting in his weakness and his confidence and good conscience in the Lord that when he sins, he goes to the Lord with it and makes it right. Because that's what grace is. Grace makes it right. It's a great thing. It's a wonderful and beautiful aspect of the Christian faith to know that there's a net to know that Christ, in His atonement on the cross, has already paid our sins in full. He's already taken God's wrath and punishment, and it's already it's been dealt with. I don't have to worry about where I stand with God. God will continue to love me, will continue to encourage me, will continue to forgive me, and continue to give me the grace that I need to continue to seek to glorify Him. I don't have to pretend that I'm something that I'm not. And when we actually see that in a Christian, man, it's a wonderful thing to see, you know? I mean, you've been around Christians who pretend before, right? <laughs> you've seen church members that act like they're holy, but then they're really, really not. And they're not repenting of their sin. If you dare accuse them of sin, they're, they're going to start screaming at you. But when you see a believer who's trying to do it the right way, and does it miserably, and yet admits the miserable attempts, and yet repents of it, man, that's integrity. Because it's pointing back to Christ, that he is the, the whole one who's seeking to make us whole, who's perfecting us as we go along. So if you're one of those people who are still on the outside looking in, if there's anything you ought to know about the, the church, simply this, it's a gathering of sinners who are saved by grace. 
We've done nothing to earn God's favor. We're not perfect people. We also fully deserve the wrath of God. But praise God, Christ has paid the penalty for our sins. And his grace is greater than all my sins. And I have a safety net. I don't have to fear falling. I've already fallen. And Christ has picked me up. It's a beautiful thing. Then for those who are inside the church already, but have gotten sort of lost in the doubt and the bitterness of life, it does happen. Know that the Lord's Supper that we're about to celebrate even now is a renewal ceremony. It's a renewal of vows where the Lord is saying to you all over again, I still love you. I know you failed miserably. I know that you haven't been walking as you ought to, but repent. My mercies are new every morning. There is hope for you. What I've begun in you, I will complete it. Don't rely on yourself. Abide in me. You will bear that fruit. You will make progress. It can happen and it will. There's a net for you. Get back up. Go fly again. It's that simple. If you think the Lord suffers for those who have already got their act together, no one here should take it. None of us got our act together. But there is an act that he has in store for us, a workmanship that he's created us to be, and we will do it with the grace and the power of the Holy Spirit working within us and the promise of God that will bring it to fruition. Praise God. His grace is greater than our sin. Let's pray. Our Father, we, we thank you for loving us. Thank you that um, you have abundantly loved us abundantly given us grace just as Paul is seeking to give abundant grace and love to the church in Corinth who clearly don't know how to love him. We pray, Father, uh, that you would make us whole, that you would take our fractured selves, that you would take uh, that divided heart that wants you in part but also wants something else of this world. We pray, Father, that you would help us to see the foolishness of that, the ignorance of our ways. Pray that through the, the means of the word preached and through the means of the Lord's Supper, that you would once again uh, show us, confirm in us the certainty of your love and the assurance of our salvation. We pray all these things.